This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Cheryl Diamond was recorded in September of 2021. Extremely pleased to have Cheryl Diamond uh, with us before. This is her first time uh, sharing the microphone with us. She is a former teen model uh, with a fascinating story. She is currently a citizen of Luxembourg and lives between there and Rome. And her behind-the-scenes account of her life as a teenage model uh, was published in 2008. She also had a second work called Naked Rome. Uh, talking about the eternal city through the eyes of its most fascinating people. But today's discussion will center around a new work called Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. We'll leave it at that for right now. Cheryl, uh, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here as well. Let's do this. Let's give our Lewis at Large listeners a little bit better setup. Uh, share with us a little bit about what led you to modeling uh, as a teen, and then give us a basic premise and background uh, for the story of Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood, and then we'll dive into it from there. Okay, of course. Well, as Nowhere Girl does, I'll start at the beginning, which is that I was born into a family of outlaws who were fleeing Interpol and various other international law enforcement agencies from before I was even born, and uh, my father was a financial criminal, among other things. And so I was born into this family, and at first it seemed fun almost because we would change our names, burn passports, buy new ones, and go to all these exotic places like India and South Africa and Japan. So as a kid, I felt like almost it was like this, game where we loved each other and we were trying to stay one step ahead of these shadowy figures who were chasing us. But as I started to get older, I realized what a dangerous situation we were actually in. And finally, um, in my teens, I realized that the most dangerous people of all weren't the ones chasing us. They were actually my own family. Cheryl, what was, uh, just for background here, what was, what was your father... Uh, and or other members of your family, what were they involved in? Um, my father was uh, stole over about $2 million at that time from his investment, uh, gold bullion investment account in the Bahamas. The reason he stole it, though, was because uh, my mother was already being hunted by Interpol because her father was in the secret police of Luxembourg and never wanted her to marry my dad. So it actually started almost innocently as this love story and then turned into um, fleeing across five continents and 26 countries by the time I was nine years old. So the, the funds were there to at least fund and subsidize the travel, the changing of identities and all of that. So from a very early age, it was not unfamiliar to you to suddenly, maybe over the course of, what, 24 hours or maybe at the most, maybe a week, dad comes home and says, okay, uh, we're done here. Now we're going to go from city A to city B and everybody pack up and off you go. That was the norm. Is that right? 
Um, and often we wouldn't even have 24 hours warning. Sometimes we would just do these midnight escapes where we would throw what we could in suitcases and then just go to the airport and take the first plane. <laughs> really, we would just see what was on the board and then choose a plane out of there. Okay. Oh, well, hey, this one's going. This one's going to Berlin. Why not? Let's just go there. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So here's. Um, what would be, if there's such a thing, if you can remember, how long would you typically be staying in a place? Was this a matter of weeks or a matter of years? Or how long would you stay in a particular city? I know it would vary, but just on average, how long? Um, sometimes it was even two years. That was in Vancouver and later in the United States and Germany. Different places in Germany, though. But most of the time... Um, I would, um, we would stay probably a month, a few weeks, sometimes, I'd say average five months, let's put it there. Did it ever occur to you, like, so when you would go from place to place, looking back on it now, the look in your parents' eyes or how they acted towards you or acted towards new neighbors or new acquaintances, did you believe that, did it feel like you were running from something, or did you just sort of assume that a lot of families like yours just did this kind of activity? Oh, I knew. I was in on the game. I mean, uh, there was no way they, other that they could have explained it to me because I needed to remember our new names, new backstories. So I knew from a very little age that these people called Interpol were, um, were after us. And... Um, and so it was very much part of my concept of the world. Okay, so so you were told there are bad people that are after us, and unfortunately we have to move from time to time on a pretty regular exactly. basis. So don't... And don't... that's... Yeah, and that was why, sorry for interrupting you, that was why they also um, taught me to never speak to the police border control um, officers, anyone in a uniform. It's the opposite of what other children are taught because they're taught, oh, there's a policeman, ask him for help. I was taught never speak to outsiders, never trust anyone. The only people you should ever be loyal to are your family. And also to be a criminal but be a noble one. That was part of our outlaw code. Wow. So if you just joined us again, you're truly Warner Lewis from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. Got an interesting one going here with Cheryl Diamond. Uh, she is a former teen model. Uh, but for the purpose of this discussion, uh, a brand new work called Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood. And we have been hearing her describe uh, her family going from place to place to place. So over what years of your life did all of this moving occur? Starting, did you say around four years old is your sort of your earliest memory? Is that right? Yeah, it started before I was born. And right. so then I just continued with them. My earliest, very, very clear memories exactly are from when I was four and we were in India hurtling down the Himalayas mountains when the brakes failed on the car that my father was driving on this super steep incline, this tiny road just hugging the curve of the mountain. So that's how it started, and it continues in that vein, um, because it was a very adventurous, terrifying, and often magical, but also um, abusive childhood. And so I wanted to seek to write a book that was very honest about both the beauty, the magic, and um, 
and how both are, they go together usually. I don't think you can often separate these highs from the crushing lows. Right. So if you, if you were to go, let's say you were living in Spain and suddenly you found yourself the next day, you were suddenly living in India. Were, was it your parents' expectation that they would enroll you in an English school or would they enroll you in a local school and somehow you were supposed to learn the language? They never enrolled me in school. In fact, I was homeschooled my entire life. Um, and then they stopped homeschooling me at the age of 13. So after that, I just learned from books I read from the library and self-taught. So I, I was never... Uh, I was only in a school once very briefly for a few months when I was 13. But apart from that, never. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, a half-brother and a half-sister who were 10 and 12 years older than me um, because my mother was married the, before, one time before when she was young. And, but I was always told they were my full siblings, so I had no idea that they, they were uh, from a different marriage until I was 13 years old, and no, 14. And my parents finally told me the truth. So, okay, but again, were they part of your family that was constantly moving? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Up until I was 13 years old. Okay, so so you would arrive, let's just say you would, you would arrive in Paris, and then you were told the family would have a sort of a meeting, and your dad would say, okay, here's what's going on while we're here. This is what you're to tell the neighbors or your teachers or your friends or whatever why we're here, and this is who you are, and this is who I am, et cetera. Kind of like basically, we're going to be different characters. Every place we go, we're going to have a slight, maybe some of the persona is the same, but some of it's a little bit different. Is that right? Exactly. It was like uh, basically he trained us like secret agents to have the same skills and to be able to switch in and out of identities with the same speed. Right. And remember it all. Okay. So you never played kid soccer, probably, or you never really got into a team. You certainly wouldn't do things like Girl Scouts or any of that. How were you in one place long enough, so to speak, to become and create a career as a teen model? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, um, by the age of 14, um, my dad had lost all this money that he had stolen because he just spent it very recklessly. And um, so we were broke. And we went from living a, almost a very glamorous lifestyle often to, have, to being homeless in the car, which was a rental car, and it was the only thing we had left. So, um, and that was over two. So I was um, walking in a mall of the town we just happened to be in, and a woman came up to me and asked me if I'd ever considered being a model. So I was scouted. And... Um, then I went to New York and um, at 16 alone, and I started to build my career because I was very determined to make enough money to, to save us, hopefully. So through all of this, um, did this, in an ironic way, did your family become this amazingly close-knit clan, or were you all ultimately starting to become just sort of suspicious of one another? So at the beginning, it felt like there was this amazing close-knit clan, although you could already see the fault lines. 
you could already see the ticking time bomb. Um, in retrospect, of course, as a little kid, and in my book, you see the time. Um, but um, it was when I was about eight that I realized how abusive my father was, uh, both mentally and physically, and how that, although I loved him and worshipped him almost like a hero, I was also fundamentally very scared of him and knew that I needed to save my mother. It was something I just always knew, say, from the age of six or seven. So as you sort of look, if you as you look back on this, uh, my gosh, so much life is sort of a bowl of spaghetti, so to speak, as you sort of unravel it. Um, what, yes. what, boy, what? Share with us, if you would, Cheryl, uh, and thank you so much for your your candidness here and and your spirit and all of that. But share with us what are sort of the lessons or what sort of a, a takeaway for you and how did it i know this seems so elementary but how did it affect you so to speak now looking back on it as an adult share one thing that maybe was an amazing ironic positive and maybe obviously something that may have left you with quite a few challenges <laughs> i don't think it's a, a silly question at all i think it's the fundamental one I think the reason, actually, that I wrote Nowhere Girl is that question, because I was asking myself, is this story going to destroy me, or is there some way of finding a positive in it, and, um, or at least a way to write myself out of the, the terror that I felt? And so um, the reason I wrote my book is because I wanted to say that a lot of people go through difficult or abusive childhood. It's just not something we talk about. And, um, and I've met people in my life who carry that guilt for their whole entire life. And um, I really wanted to say that these are things that happen to us as a kid when we're too little to do anything about it. But we're not the, we don't have to be the victim of it. It depends really how we write our stories, because we're all the writers of our story, even if we never <laughs> write anything down. And... Um, so I wanted to say that it is possible to change this idea other people have of who you should be, and it's very important to, at some point in your life, take a stand. So in answer to the question, what did it teach me, it taught me who I am in a very, very brutal and exhausting way, but it taught it to me young, because if you change your identity that many times, you have it either shatters your sense of self, or you have to look very deep inside yourself and find something solid that doesn't change with all those names. So it made me do that. And um, it's never something I have to worry about, really, whether I can trust myself, whether I can count on myself. These are things that, through the trauma, were taught to me and which I'll always carry with me. Cheryl, what about your ability uh, to create relationships Platonic, romantic, etc., cetera, uh, that are close and binding. Tell us about, has it, did it leave you with any challenges on that front? Huge challenges, yes. At the beginning, massive. It was so difficult for me to trust anyone because I grew up not being able to trust anyone in my own family. And um, so that was really, after escaping my father, that was my biggest um obstacles to overcome, and I pushed myself out into the world 
even though I didn't want to. And I told myself, you've got to connect because otherwise I'm just never going to be able to be me uh, because the me who I am, I love people. I love connecting and I'm a very warm person. So that was why the life we led was also so damaging to me. Um, so basically I forced myself to try and trust people and to just try and do that every day a little bit more. And I have to say that um, my friend group who I met when I was 25 in Berlin and then the ones later on here in Rome, they've, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that they've saved my life because slowly and just by being them, um, they taught me that I can completely trust and count on people. And uh, and now it's like I built my own family, the ones I chose, and the ones who truly love me. Now, as an adult, uh, do you have uh, a relationship with your mother and father? And if you do, please describe it if you would. And if you don't, maybe tell us why that is. And Or do you even know their whereabouts? My father, I have no idea where he is. I haven't seen him since I escaped with my mother 10 years ago. Um, my mother, we actually have a lovely relationship um, because we've been through so much together. We got away from him together. And uh, it was very rocky at times because I held a lot of anger towards her for not really protecting me from him as a child. But, uh, you know, we worked through it because we love each other and because that in the end, mattered more to me than being angry at her, even though that felt good at the beginning, of course. Um, but I realized the only person I was really going to hurt with that was me. So, yeah, we have a lovely relationship, and she visits Rome often. If your father, you know, in, in this world of cell phones and emails and, and a lot of ways to contact people, um, were your father to contact you, uh, what would your reaction be, do you think? And, and would you like to see him again, either secretly or who knows what, just in any way, shape, or form? No, never. No, I hope I never ever see him again. Um, because everything that I had to say to him, I did before I left. I tried to resolve things as, as best I could, and he just reacted with violence and threats. And, um, no, because I fought so hard to get free. I would, I don't go backwards in life. That's one of my rules. <laughs> that wasn't one that was necessarily taught to me, but I don't do that. If someone has clearly shown that they mean to harm me and harm my mother and that they really just have no empathy, then, um, that's certainly not someone I would want in the life I've built now. Yeah. Do you have any idea, again, now with the perspective of an adult and of time, what what made your dad run down the path the wrong way? Have any feel what, what led him that way? I think that would be a question for a psychologist or a psychiatrist um, because clearly there were some imbalances uh, there. Uh, I'm not trained in that way, but uh, so the only thing I could do was tell my story and... Uh, right and tell the truth of what it's like to grow up with someone who has these massive peaks and valleys and also this genius IQ and how that combined with uh, leaning towards or being a sociopath is so very dangerous and almost impossible to escape. 
Well, as we start to wind down here, uh, share with us now, what, what is Cheryl Diamond doing now? Tell us a little bit about your life now and uh, how things are going for you. Well, now things are going well. I'm um, promoting my book both in America and also Germany now because it's been translated into German. And so I just got back from a trip to Vienna, um, which was somewhere that I lived when I was nine years old, and I talk about it in the book. And I hadn't been back there since I was nine. So that was a very emotional weekend for me this weekend, but emotional in a good way because the TV crew took me back to the neighborhood where I used to live and we filmed there. And it was just amazing to look at that very same building that I would see every day as a kid and go into and realize I survived. Like, I I don't know how I did it, really. But uh, it was nice to envision the little girl there and and think uh, somehow she's still alive. I don't say this very often, but, uh, boy, this just begs a movie being made about this, doesn't it? (laughs) Mm, Yeah, there has been interest. Yes, yes. Yeah, I could see that this is, no, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't a Lifetime movie. This is the real thing. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) For sure. Well, listen. This is not a romance. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. And this is, this is, actually, you know what it could be? Maybe it's, maybe instead of a movie, maybe it's a series on Netflix. That'd probably be more interesting. But, yeah, exactly. Anyway, yeah. Well, listen, again, the work is Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood by former teen model uh, and now a courageous citizen uh, of the world, Cheryl Diamond. <laughs> Cheryl, real quick before we get out of here, how can our uh, listeners get a copy of the book? And also, you've got a couple other earlier works. How can they find out a little bit more about you? Of course. So my website, uh, where you can find out everything about me, is www. CherylDiamond.co. So that's C H E R Y L Diamond.co. Or Instagram is ShareDiamond, C H E R Diamond. And uh, Nowhere Girl is available in bookstores everywhere, or also, of course, on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble. And the audiobook is available on audible.com. Well, again, thank you so much for your candidness, uh, sharing uh, an extraordinary and yet I know difficult and challenging story. And best of luck to you and would love to have you back on again. Thank you. Well, I would love to come back. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Cheryl, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.